This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, director Ben Lear on his documentary, They Call Us Monsters, which is now available to watch on Netflix. The documentary takes a look inside the juvenile justice system in Los Angeles as three teenagers who are being tried as adults for violent crimes take on a new initiative for rehabilitation as they creatively write a short film while simultaneously awaiting their fate. The film also takes an inside look into the families of these prisoners, as well as into one of the victims of the violent crimes. Director Ben Lear shares how he got involved with the Inside Out Writers program featured in the film, and his thoughts on the juvenile justice system and the prison system in California and the United States. And look inside his filmmaking process as we discuss the development and filming of the documentary, as well as his work with Eli Despress, the editor of the acclaimed documentary Wiener, and some of the incredible lessons he's learned from working with Eli. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at jogroad, Instagram at jogroadproductions, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions, to watch some of our video interviews with Don Cheadle, Greta Gerwig, Ewan McGregor, and many more. You can also like our Facebook page, Jog Road Productions, and don't forget to subscribe to the Road to Cinema podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcast for an instant download of the latest episode every week. And you can also write us a nice review under the review section on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. And now we join director Ben Lear as we discuss his documentary, They Call Us Monsters, which is now available to watch on Netflix. And you can learn more about the Inside Out Writers Program by visiting their website, insideoutwriters.org. To start off, I was curious because I was reading when you originally visited a prison in California, you were researching a narrative project. Yeah. So how did it come about that you thought a, a documentary was in there and that what sparked your interest in the prison system in general? Really? Sure. I think the transition from narrative to documentary happened for a couple of reasons that I can get into. Uh, yeah, the initial inspiration was it was really me as as a musician um, back in 2000, like early, early 2013, wanting to try to pivot into film and uh, find a way to make that transition. And I had this idea for a screenplay. I'd never written a script before prior to or, or since like middle school messing around writing short films and stuff. Hadn't even attempted any type of a screenplay. So, uh, but I had, I had read this article that was about a prison program that just caught my fascination and decided to take a crack at that. And, uh, uh, I very, very quickly realized that I knew nothing about prison (laughs) and had no, had no point of reference or understanding of that world and hit a wall really, really fast. Um, so my very close uh, family friend, longtime friend, Gabe Cowan, who teaches the writing class in the documentary, um, I had been talking with him about this project, and he said, I got this family friend who volunteers at a juvenile hall and is really into juvenile justice. You know, maybe we can check out this facility and give us some ideas. So we sat in on this class and uh, had this really profound experience meeting these kids who were in juvenile camp, um, you know, serving like six month sentences. Uh, and were these the kids that were in the film? No, no, this was a different place. These were kids that were being tried as juveniles. So they were just in there for petty crimes, you know, like maybe, uh, you know, shoplifting or truancy or something, you know, along those lines. But most of them were gang related, were, you know, the same, you know, from the same communities as the kids that are in the documentary, but just were facing a lot less time. So after this, uh, after this visit, um, Gabe's friend said, you know, you, you got to talk. If you want to keep doing this, there's one person you got to talk to. It's this guy, Scott Budnick. And Scott, at the time, was a really just big-time Hollywood producer. He did all Todd Phillips movies. All, he, he was known for like the Hangover trilogy, so these dumb comedies. Uh, funny, but, but dumb. And we're like, wait, who do you want us to meet? She's like, oh, yeah, 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 no. He, he makes movies, uh, he makes these comedies, but 
his real passion is like solving, you know, mass incarceration. <laughs> like, all right. He's just like another white Jew like us, you know, stumbling into this 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 uh, whole other world. But Scott had, you know, been a part of it for, for about a decade by that point. Um, and we met Scott and he was really, you know, we hit it off right away and we opened up our calendars and he said, all right, let's, uh, if you want to go to some other facilities, if you want to get into this, let's do it. What are you doing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? And like we booked, we just scheduled a bunch of visits really fast. So I had this real whirlwind, uh, tour of, of prison, jail, juvenile hall. We had dinner with about a dozen former lifers, you know, who are out now, um, doing really great things, you know, working, going to school. And it was just this super profound, uh, you know, change of, you know, life-changing experience. Whole time I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm thinking about this screenplay that I'm trying to write, but I'm also really stuck on the experience of sitting in a writing class in a juvenile hall with somebody who is in the middle of discovering who they are for the first time, what they maybe want to do with their lives, do they want to be an architect? Do they want to be a scientist? Do they want to be an artist? Uh, but hoping they'll get the chance because they're facing 100 years in prison. You know, and I'd never heard of people, you know, facing that kind of time or people getting sentences longer than their life expectancy. You know, I never thought about these were juveniles who were being tried as adults. Unlike these first kids that we met, these are the kids that had already, you know, Face, are, are facing the full consequences of their lifestyle at an age before they've begun to etch out their own identity, you know, from, from that of the gang, from that of their community. Uh, they were just beginning, like, the, the coming-of-age process. And it was just that broke my heart to see that uh, possibility taken away before it could even start. Also, but, but, but then that heartbreak is conflicted by knowing, you know, the seriousness of the crimes that they're facing. Like these are not uh, good little kids. I mean, these are these are young men and young women in some cases who've committed the most serious crimes imaginable, you know? So it was this impossible juxtaposition I was trying to grapple with. Uh, and I realized that was just starting to consume me more and more and more to the point where I realized, uh, okay, you know, not only is this issue fascinating, but it's 2013. The California legislature is about to introduce, you know, one of the first bills in 25 years to give these exact kids a second chance. So now would be the time to tell this story. I've never seen these kids. I think, you know, I can think of one or two documentaries that I've seen um, about, you know, juveniles that are tried as adults or in adult prison. Uh, it's very few, so I, and I knew nothing about it, and I thought, okay, well, if I can just get a camera in this juvenile hall, start filming, um, I could have a movie, you know, I could be telling a really, really interesting, important story right away. I think there was a small part of me also that was, like, really into the idea of procrastinating right, writing. <laughs> She's like, well, fuck, I, oh, screw it, whatever. I can, just, uh, I can just start shooting right now. Now, how so. hard was it to get inside a prison, have that permission to film, and then on top of that, get the permission to film these three specific boys that are featured in the film. Yeah, so that was the, I think we had our biggest hurdle off the bat. You know, I thought access is going to be the hardest part. There's a reason why there aren't a bunch of movies about Juvenile Hall. I think, you know, filming incarcerated minors, and not only that, who are, who are awaiting their trials is as sensitive a subject as you could, you could find. So I thought if we could just get the access, then then we'd be good to go. Um, I, I was very very lucky uh, to have met Scott uh, and found my way in through Scott. He had a lot of favor with probation department, um, and then the timing was also really great. I think probation in Los Angeles County was interested in trying to change the narrative around their you know or their organization so they recognized that this film was not out to get probation it's really i didn't care one way or the other it's not about the conditions of the jail it's about the conditions of their hearts and their souls and and their struggle and obviously you know 
they're being incarcerated is important, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to attack this, the system really. Yeah. It's about having that conversation that can spark from watching the film. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and I also noticed like, wow, there are like this juvenile hall is surprising me in certain ways. Like some of the staff are very caring and, and they, and I, and I wanted to show that I wanted to upend expectations at every turn. And one of the ways was to show some staff members who actually are really invested and, and, and do care. Um, and, and are also hurt when, you know, that effort they put in is wasted by a hundred year sentence or by a kid who just, they just couldn't fully help who gets out and messes up again. You know, it's just very messy, complicated stuff. So, so probation was on board. Uh, so we got the access to film in the location. That wasn't too difficult. The real challenge was getting approval to film the miners themselves. Initially we went out for like 20 different kids, any kid that was in a writing class. Cause I wanted to film a writing class as the through line for the documentary. Cause that was the way that I got to know them. That's how I saw them kind of come out of their shells. I wanted to capture that. Did all of the classes have the component of making a short film? No, no. So that, so that came kind of came out of left field. Like the initial intention was I just wanted to film the, the typical writing classes are more journal entry, poetry. Let's write honestly about our experiences and have catharsis, you know, write a different piece every week based on some prompt, a poem or song lyrics or whatever. Uh, what happened was, while I was coming up with this idea for the documentary, Gabe was separately coming up with an idea for a class that he wanted to teach. He was very inspired by the same experiences I had I had gone through, meeting all these kids. But his version of it was, oh, maybe I could take my filmmaking experience, bring it in there, write a screenplay with them, and then and then I would just go out, film it for them, give them a sense of of accomplishment. So that they can carry into, you know, worst case scenario, prison if they get sentenced. So we, as we were getting access, one of the things probation said was, you'll have a lot easier of a time getting all these things done if you guys just combine your projects. You know, you, uh, you start this class, you film the class. Um, my initial instinct was was against it. I, I didn't like the idea of doing this one-off screenwriting class. I wanted to capture just kind of what the real Inside Out Writers class was. Inside Out Writers is the organization that does uh, these classes, and they're phenomenal. That's all through California. That's through. It's a, it's a nonprofit, but they have a partnership with probation, and they teach writing classes in every juvenile hall in the county. Uh, and it's just an, a brilliant organization um, that I recommend anybody who's interested in getting involved and volunteering check out. Uh, but, uh, but I but I said, yes, if it was going to mean, if it was going to be the deal breaker for getting access, it's totally a, something that I, I ended up being incredibly grateful for, uh, for a lot of different reasons that I can get into, but, but yeah, so we, we petitioned for like 20 kids. Um, they, because they were in, in, in adult court, they had individual adult, adult court judges and we had to petition them individually. Many, 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 many of them said no. And that's the end of that. You can't ask them why. And uh, of of those twenty, we got five yeses. Uh, one of them shipped out to adult prison before we started shooting, and the fourth was Daryl, who was sent to adult prison very soon after we started shooting. And we ended up with Juan, Jared, and Antonio, who are the three boys who take the class. Um, it's total coincidence that they were also the three kids that I knew the best. I had gotten to know them just through sitting next to them in a writing class or having a little conversation with them after class. Uh, so that was just, you know, one of those things that, were they you know, comfortable being on camera initially or was there any, I, th I think that? you kind of see it in the film. Uh, the, f the first time you meet them is the first class and, and they're definitely, you know, kind of tense and, and guarded and, you know, also kind of more polite as well because they're just sussing it out. Yeah. Um, and I know from talking to Martinez, the staff, you know, they, they would walk back to the unit afterwards and they'd be like, who are these guys? Like, what are they doing here? Are they trying to like, what are they trying to get? You know, what do they want from us? And Martinez would be like, look, I, I don't know. I, I think they may, you know, I think they may just want to do something positive. Like, who knows? You know, just feel it out. Um, and that's what the process was. It was us kind of feeling it out. I felt really connected right away. I wasn't a 
that much older than them when when this whole process started. So I still felt like, you know, I was I was figuring stuff out too. Like I was still kind of coming of age, and and I felt related in that way. Even though our circumstances were so insanely different, there were just these profound. Um, commonalities that that made me more interested in, in digging further and figuring out what else we had in common and if we could have all these things in common you know uh then are we tr- are we different in some fundamental way because i think i was holding on to this belief that as much as i could relate to them and as much as i like them as people you know at, at the end of the day there's the kind of person that can pull a trigger and a kind of person that can't and I just assumed I was the kind that couldn't. They clearly could. And that's a fundamental difference. Um, the process of making this film completely uh, demolished that notion for me. I mean, I ended up walking away feeling like, you know, there but for the grace of God. Had I grown up under those circumstances, you know, I could have 100% been that kid. There's so many different things environmental things personal things emotional things neurological things like the mixture of nature and nurture everything coalescing on a scale that we can't possibly comprehend to lead someone to pull a trigger and then also including intoxication and you know drugs and it's just like there's so many freaking factors especially with a young person the systematic issues that occur in these low-income neighborhoods people just don't connect I mean you see something yeah. in the news somebody gets shot and killed but the the nuances of that narrative of you know how did this kid get to that point right you know what was he living under what were the conditions how did that escalate yeah you know, we sort of ignore that and I feel like to get to the root of the problem to solve it we have to just acknowledge that this is a systematic issue it's not a individual by individual issue 100 percent it's uh, and as I started to discover that by getting to know them better and talking to their families, you know that became a really important part of the film. And I realized the only two the two main ways that you are introduced to you know you know serious criminals, which is what the the world will perceive them as, is through the news, you know, through a headline in a news story, which is just about the crime itself. Uh, and or if you're in the system, if you're a jury member or whatever, through the trial or somebody's case, where all you learn about is the crime itself. And then you see this kid with a bunch of neck tattoos sitting there, you know, looking smug when really he's scared. Uh, and if that's the only side of the story that you get, of course it's going to be easy to, to vilify this person, to, to demonize this person and to throw him away. You know, but it's obviously not the whole story. You know, there are so there are so many systemic factors uh, at play. You know, that it's it's hard. You know, this is what's tricky when you know. Sometimes people ask me, well, what can we do on the front end? Like, how can we help these kids before they commit this crime? And I'm and a lot of times I'm at a, I'm at a loss for words because it it really is so it's so massive. It's such a massive, complicated problem. It's really, really hard to kind of whittle down solutions. Obviously, you know, education is huge. Obviously, you know, family is is huge. Support, love. You know, you're not going to look for a toxic, twisted form of love if you're already getting, you know, a real, natural form of love from your family, from your community. Um, there are ways, for sure, to disincentivize these kids from joining gangs, but it's uh they're going up against a lot because the the draw towards a gang is is also very 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 powerful especially if you're somebody who's who's lacking some of these core things like love like community like brotherhood uh and and maybe more important than all of those uh purpose yeah especially when the options are so low and there is no purpose right you know the magnet of going toward a gang of committing a crime it's it's because it's going to be easy it's gonna be like that's the so you know that's what i need to do with my life there's there there isn't another option there's one there's one thing that every single kid i've ever met in juvenile hall uh who is from a gang or from a underserved community um and the one thing that they all say you know because i I've, i volunteer now with inside our writers and i'm teaching a class every tuesday and uh and sometimes i'll be like all right look like Let's write a piece about your story, who you are, 
and let's just put the gang thing aside for a second. I'm not asking you to quit your gang, you know, you do what you're gonna do, but just for the purposes of this exercise, let's just ignore the gang stuff and talk about what else you got going on. Yeah. And, and, and without fail, every single time I've attempted this, I've gotten the same response, which is, I don't know. I do not know who I am without the gang. I don't know what I like. I don't know what I'm into. That's their whole identity. It's their entire yeah. identity. It's the entire thing because for a lot of reasons, partially because they, they weren't supported and nurtured and they didn't have to grow up in an environment where they could you know, carve the facets of, of their personality and their identity as, as young people, but also because a lot of that work starts you know, or, or restarts for real when you're 13, 14 in adolescence, starting to come of age. And that's the exact same time that they get swooped up into these gangs, you know, so that, so they completely miss this opportunity to figure out, you know, maybe some of them say, well, I love playing basketball. I love, I love sports, but we couldn't afford, you know, to keep doing this program after school program, or I got, I hurt my knee and I couldn't do it anymore, you know, or, or I just, liked the gang more you know i mean it's uh it's 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 really profound so so i'm i have a super intense fascination in in helping them kind of restart that process which is which is what the documentary really is about it's not about juan jared and antonio becoming screenwriters it's about them in this environment where their entire lives are hanging in the balance you know they're all awaiting trial facing decades upon decades upon decades in prison uh and they take the screenwriting class and it's a way for them to start exploring their inner lives telling uh, a different story and in the process kind of discovering oh i have a talent for writing or i have a talent for making people laugh or i have a talent for you know uh delegating responsibilities or i have a talent for like running a, a, a writer's room you know like i or, or or in a lot of cases you know some of my favorite stuff that we filmed was when Gabe brought in actors for them to work with to workshop their scenes, watching Jared and Juan direct them, you know, there's there's scenes where Jared has a, you know, he's got a pencil on his ear and he's like watching a scene and he's crouching down and he's like so in it and he's he's catching, you know, everything that's happening in the scene and then he calls cut and he goes up and he's like, all right, look, this is what I like, this is what I didn't like, you know, and it's just yeah. this incredible moment where you're seeing him exhibit a point of view. Uh, and an opinion, and that is really the fundamental building blocks of identity. Is po- that it is point of view. I think that helps also in the rehabilitation process to give like a sense of independence, yeah. a sense of decision making. Did you notice in the prison system sort of the the conflict between punishment and rehabilitation, and if there was a push to sort of not go for the rehabilitation in a way? Yeah. No. I think the simplest way to put it for me is you know. When, for juveniles specifically, you know, when you are placed in juvenile court and you're tried as a juvenile and the max sentence you can get is 23 years, the implication is uh, you can be rehabilitated. We want you to go back into society. We want to help you. We want to fix you. You're going home. Uh, let's, let's do this. Let's get to work. If you're tried as an adult, the maximum time you can face is literally hundreds of years in prison. Even, you know, even with these laws that are being passed, you can still get crazy amounts of time. Uh, and that implication is you're not worth, uh, you know, you're not, you're not worth the effort. You're irretrievably lost. You know, you committed such a serious crime that on the basis of that alone, um, you, it's not worth trying to redeem you, rehabilitate you. So these are kids in that situation. You know, Juan, Jared, and Antonio, even though they're in this juvenile hall, there are these programs, there is an opportunity for them to kind of educate themselves and, and have some rehabilitative programming. The, the, the atmosphere, the environment is not conducive to that. It's not nurturing that in them. It's, it, it, they, they, heard, they heard the message loud and clear, yeah. you know, that, that it's over for you. And a lot of them just throw in the towel and give up entirely and i'm and with juan and jared and antonio i was lucky that they 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 had enough of a survivor's instinct where even at that point they were interested in starting to turn their lives around i've so, i teach so many kids now who are not even there remotely 
you know, and it's it's crazy to try to sit somebody down. You don't have that motivation. No, to, not to at all. I mean, somebody who's facing four murder charges and that's four life sentences, and like they they know that there are these laws that are going to help them down the line get parole hearings, but in their minds, it's like it's so over. Not only is it so over, I was already ready for this. Like this is part of the deal for me. Like I knew that by the by choosing this lifestyle, I'd end up in prison forever I'd, or I'd end up dead. So I'm already, I'm basically on track already and uh, it is what it is. And they just, and they just have this fuck it mentality and they completely bury any sense of self or, or their own feelings. Uh, and that's hard, that's hard to dig out. <laughs> but it's, I, but uh, you see it, but you see yeah. it happen because the, because the power of, of identity at the end of the day, I think is stronger. Um, and I think everybody has that survivor's instinct to, to one extent or another. And if, if they can find mentorship or encouragement or some sort of guidance, uh, it's, it's possible, you know, it's just, it does get tricky when you think about, well, but what if we're talking about somebody who's already, who's taken another life, you know, who's committed an irreversible crime, who has a victim who will never have any of those opportunities again, who is no longer living, uh, what what do we owe to their family? What do we owe to the community? You know, just straight up justice retribution. You know, how does that factor in? It does that have value? Uh, it's super complicated. Now, in the film, you interview one of the victims. What was that process like in terms of getting her comfortable to speak to you? And also, at what point in the process did you talk to her? Like, was it well into mm -hmm. you establishing relationships with Juan, Jared, and Antonio? Yeah, so we talked to Yesenia, one of the victims of Jared's crime, you know, who, who he put in a wheelchair, or, you know, allegedly at the time he had put in a wheelchair. Um, we talked to her towards the end of filming, actually. You know, I had started working with uh, a producer, this, this woman, Sasha Alpert, um, who came on board partway through, and one of her conditions was, you know, you gotta tell the victim side of the story. It's something that I wanted to do, but to be honest, I was just kind of nervous. I was like just afraid to go in that direction because I knew how intense that could get. Um, and I didn't want to be the guy. It's like, hey, I'm making this movie humanizing this person that did this a, a horrible, heinous thing to you. You know, do you want to be a part of that? But what I realized was, and what really made it worthwhile, I think, for Yesenia was, it was not, hey, do you want to help me humanize this guy who hurt you? It's, hey, this story needs the voice of a survivor of crime. You know, it needs that balance. Um, because, yeah, there, it's worthwhile to show the, you know, this young man in, in three dimensions and let people decide you know, how they, how they should feel about him and how he should be treated by the system. Um, but you, but almost as important as getting to know him, you have to know the crime intimately. You have to know the consequences of that crime. And Yuseni is a super strong, really, really, you know, amazing person. And she got that right away. And she wanted to talk. She wanted to, to, to fill that space in the film and, and be that voice. So um, it was actually a really smooth process working with her. Now, by the end of the filming, did you have a clear idea of how everything was going to be edited together or did it sort of organically come together when you were starting the editing process itself? Uh, definitely not. It, the editing process, and I, you know, I'm infinitely grateful to, to our editor, Eli Depre, who is a genius. Um, I think he worked on Wiener, right? He worked on Wiener. Yeah. Well, it's funny, actually. He, <laughs> quick side story. We were editing monsters and um about halfway through he's like hey ben <laughs> let me i gotta show you something i got this weird email and they sent me this clip you know th there's this potential job and he pulls it up and he shows me a scene from like an early 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 cut of something from wiener and he's like yeah, yeah. this guy was a staffer for Anthony Weiner, filmed his entire mayoral campaign. They have the whole thing, like when the collapse, and it was just like, oh my God, Eli, you gotta do this. Like, <laughs> this is crazy. So we ended up, we actually finished a cut of this film, yeah. and then he went on and cut Weiner, 
And then once he was done with Wiener, he came back and worked on They Call Us Monsters for a couple more months. So we, it was like a kind of sandwich. And it was interesting. At the time, he was like, I feel like so perfectly primed to work on Wiener because in some weird way, it's a similar story. It's like a profile of this person who's very morally flawed, um, who we are attempting to show in three dimensions and humanize and kind of let the audience decide for themselves how they should feel. So it's like, I, you know, yeah. it's kind of the same storytelling process. It's like, oh yeah, that's true. If people have preconceived ideas about Anthony Weiner totally. on one level and preconceived ideas about about yeah, these kids and then, and then you see, you know, you see these kids blossom and flourish as writers, as filmmakers, as people, and then you also get to see Anthony Weiner, like, you know, what made him a successful politician, and you see how much people loved him at the time, like how communities would come out for him and applaud him, and you know, he was a, a super sharp, um, like, really great orator and debater, and you know, all yeah. this stuff. Too bad he has this yeah. I mean, horrible, watching fatal it, you're just, flaw. You're watching it, you're just thinking, why can't you get it together? Exactly. You, know, you could be such an influential politician if yeah. you wanted to. Yeah, it's really, it's really, it's a crazy, crazy. It's that's like a you know a once in a lifetime uh, type of a film. You know, it's such a, an incredible film. Yeah, it's kind of the perfect timing, the perfect yeah. way to get access in. It's, yeah, you know. yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, but no, but Eli is truly a genius. Um, and he was so helpful because because this film you know they call us monsters has has so many storylines running at the same time that we needed to weave together. It has the story of the class. It has the individual stories of the three boys. It has the stories of each of their cases. It has the story of the Senate bill that's going through the legislature. Um, and trying to put all of that together was a big challenge, especially kind of knowing also that we wanted to create this ride for the audience, similar to what I experienced in real life, between, you know, I'm, I'm falling in love with these kids. Oh, shoot. But now I'm reminded about what they did. Now I'm questioning how I should feel, but I can't help it. I still like them. But, oh, my God, it's that bad. And, you know, it's this constant back and forth that really forces you to make up your own mind. Like, at the end of the day, you know, uh, my assumption is enough people have the requisite amount of empathy to, to really humanize these kids because they are clearly human and clearly full of potential. So people are going to feel for them. Um, but that's not what, you know, I, I tried hard and Eli and I both, uh, not to kind of, uh, nudge you too hard in that direction, you yeah. know, to really kind of leave that up to you. Well, I think balancing those four, parallel narratives in a way, the bill, uh, the, the three court cases, the, the class, it sort of gives you uh, a real a real sustainable point of view yeah. to everything. You know, it's not just one area, so you can really engage and make up your mind for yourself in a sense. Right, and that's true. And we're also, we're also kind of sort of telling the story of the issue, partially through the, the, the debates in the legislature, we had a couple experts, you know, talking to us, but it, we made sure it was only the only people that we interviewed were people directly involved in the kids' lives. So if we needed a lawyer's point of view, we interviewed Juan's lawyer. If we needed a judge's point of view, we interviewed Jared's judge. So everybody's directly connected, so that way it could remain uh, just a personal human story and not become an issue film, which was not something I was particularly interested in doing. Well, I was curious, how do you uh, organize during the editing process? Did you sort of pick uh, particular footage and then sort of categorize it based on the class, the, the bill, the court case? So yeah, we, de yeah, we definitely organized, you know, a lot of, a lot of fo footage in terms of, you know, subject matter. Uh, but Eli's process is very unique uh, and really interesting. And the way he works is he'll go through stuff um, he wants to look at the, the biggest moments first. I mean, he wants to look at Jared's trial. He wants to look at, you know, the, some big moment that happened in the class. The things that we know are in the movie. Uh, and, and work with that. And, and f he always talks about finding, uh, you know, the gold or the nugget in a scene. You know, what's, what's the thing that has to be there? The moment that's tr so truthful, so real, that that it's it's forcing itself into the film 
and then we cut around that. And in, in that way, we are letting the footage tell us what the movie should be. And that required a lot of letting go on my part, um, two ideas that I had constructed um, separately from that and realizing, no, actually this is a much more organic, interesting way to work, which is just let the moments themselves tell us whether or not they should be in the film and how and in what order, you know, and yeah. just kind of follow the story that way. And and the other really great thing about working with Eli was we lined up so much in terms of sensibility and taste uh, and storytelling, you know, instinct and all that. Except I think I'm a little bit more melodramatic than him. He's like very very cutthroat. Like I, there are a couple things that I. Like, oh, I want to do this montage where Jared's reading this poem that's really heartbreaking and put this music cue in there. And he's like, you know, it was this thing that we had in this fundraising trailer. The end of our fundraising trailer was Jared reading this heartbreaking poem that he'd read cut against, you know, really hopeful footage of the of the young men like doing their thing and, and this really uplifting cue. And I'm thinking the whole time, like, oh, this is this is like the heart of the movie. Like, this is going to be like an incredible scene. And, yeah. and Eli, we showed him the fundraising trailer and, and I talked to Eli, he's like, oh my God, I, I, I love it. I love this trailer. Like I want to work on the film. This is going to be great. Let's do it. So we team up, we start working together and I play that scene again. I was like, hey, so remember the scene from the fundraising trailer where Jared's reading the poem? He's like, <laughs> he's like, oh, right. Oh yeah, no, we're going to get rid of that. <laughs> I was like, but I thought, I thought you loved the fundraising trailer. He's like, I did, except for that part. <laughs> That's the part that uh, I was so ex- what I was part of what I was so excited about was to get in there and get rid of that <laughs> and tell the tell the film that doesn't include these like you know melodramatic uh, big emotional things and and he ended up being totally totally right you know it's I think it's a much more powerful film just uh, told with a straight face. How do you balance that director editor relationship in terms of you know when to sort of go along, you know, and sort of take like a hard line choice. Like I believe in this a hundred percent. I'm not going to like have a conversation about it versus like, I'm going to have a dialogue, you know, let's see if this works and, and defer you know, it to you a little bit. Luckily, I, I feel like Eli and I ultimately fell in line so, so closely, so neatly. I didn't really have to have any of those arguments with him. Um, and then our, you know, Sasha and her company who produced the film were so great as well. And, and they had great taste. And so there was never, there wasn't a single moment where it was like, no, we got to put this in. Uh, uh, but the producers, you know, won't let us or uh, Eli thinks it's stupid or, you know, it, it really, it, it was very seamless. Um, but the relationship was great. Like, I just kind of thought my job was I had this vision, you know, when I was sitting in this classroom you know, the first time I was in a juvenile hall and it sparked the idea to make the film. And so the, the whole idea for the film was simply, I want to just try to recreate that feeling that I had, you know, meeting these kids, being very torn about how I feel about them. Um, but ultimately kind of, you know, feeling really connected. Uh, so I just, I, I made sure I had to have my eye on that vision Eli was cutting a lot of scenes. He cut a lot of scenes on his own and I would come in and talk to him and, and we would tweak things. I'd make sure, you know, okay, this, this scene's working really well, but it's not quite, you know, you know, some, it's funny. I also describe it like, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to steal this from, from a friend of mine who's a really smart writer. Who's like, you got to know what kind of tree you're planting, you know, or if you're writing a script or you're cutting a documentary, like, what is it, an elm tree, an oak tree, a birch, uh, whatever. It's like a palm tree. Once you know what the tree is, you know right away, uh, oh, that scene, that's not an elm tree. You know, we got to cut. How, do we, how can we cut that to make that the part of the same tree? You know, mm-hmm. and that's, that's kind of what the process was always. And it's like, all right, now the opening titles, the title, the font, ah, that's, not, that's not quite an elm tree. You know, how do we make that an elm tree? Uh, and once you realize like you're, you know what kind of tree you're making, and you you know how to make every single decision to to go along with that. Um, that's kind of what I felt my job was, so that Eli can kind of do his thing, and I could just be like, oh, maybe a little of that, maybe a little less of that. Yeah. But I think for the but also also my I think maybe more importantly than that, the job is 
making sure everybody else sees the same tree. So I don't have to say that over and over. And he already knows, we already know we're making the same movie. So he can go off and hit the ground running and work for, you know, a month and just cut amazing stuff. And, uh, and and it, and it goes in the movie. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. You know, you know what the movie is. You you know, to a tree, you know, it's this specific thing. And yeah, every decision goes through that filter. Exactly, exactly. How has the reaction to the film sort of shifted in terms of you know we were sort of in this post-Trump election environment? Right. Has that affected sort of the response and? How yeah, view the, the prison system. And- it's interesting. You know, obviously, the Trump administration and, and Jeff Sessions—they're very uh, law and order, kind of old school, tough on crime in a way that even mainstream conservatism had been leaning away from for for a while. Like, you know, mass incarceration, criminal justice issues have become one of the very few bipartisan issues. Um, lowering prison populations and. Uh, you know, kind of, you know, lessening sentences that are seem unjust and also make no financial sense uh, was one of the things you can go across the aisle and shake on. But this administration has kind of backed off of that in a big way. The, The silver lining there is very few of these issues that are in the film um, are determined on the federal level. It's pretty much a state thing. So the Trump administration can set a dangerous tone that, that potentially could trickle down towards the states and toughen you know, sentencing laws uh, again. But I feel like, and you know, it'd be interesting to talk to some people that are working in this every day about how it's changed, but I'm feeling like the momentum is still there you know, it's because, you know, this this reform movement was birthed out of uh, Supreme Court decisions that have happened over the last 10 or more years that have basically said in a few different ways, teenagers are different from adults. We've got to treat them differently. Their brains are not fully developed. They should not be put away for life without parole. They should not be able to be given the death penalty. You know, this should be retroactive. We should go back and, and give, you know, young people that were committed, sentenced to crimes as teenagers, even if they're 50, 60, 70 years old now, they should get parole hearings if they don't have them. Yeah. Um, and now states are mandated to legislate that. So, you know, there's some states that are going to work harder than others to find loopholes and ways around it or drag their feet or whatever. But, but what you're seeing is laws on the books now or in the, in the legislature that are bringing second chances to, to juveniles who had been uh, sentenced to, to tons of time. Uh, so I think, it's really, I think it's really cool. And, and my idea for the film was always to fit into, into that reform movement in a way that kind of helps people that are maybe on the fence or, or are not connected you know, viscerally with the issue to see, oh, this is who we're talking about. Yeah. These are the kids that, that, that we're discussing. You know, like, le- there are these legislatures all over the country who are determining the fates of thousands of, of young people whom they've never met and, and whom they've only known from their crimes because that's like that's what we were saying they're earlier. That's how they're defined by their right, crimes only. Right, exactly. And, that's what, and, and so here's, this is just, you know, it's 80 minutes uh, of more than that, you know, where you can actually make a connection and then look, if you still feel it after 80 minutes, you know, Jared is a psychopath and, you know, you're scientifically not on, you're on faulty ground because, because his brain's not fully developed, it's pretty impossible to know for sure if, if he is a psychopath or not. That's something that you kind of have to figure out later. But if you feel like he, he, he doesn't deserve to be given a second chance, then okay, you're entitled to that opinion. You know, that's a totally fair conclusion to draw from the film. My hunch is that most people will draw a different conclusion. And most people have. We've actually, you know, I've gotten way, 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 way less of that type of uh, feedback than I anticipated. You know, I thought, I thought the film traveling around the country would get a lot of pushback. Um, I think part, part, that's partly because advocacy communities and communities that are directly affected by the issue have really clung to the film and have been the majority of its kind of uh, support and lifeblood, you know. 
it's it's hard to get a film like this out to a, a wider public who doesn't know anything about the issue because you look at it even if it isn't an advocacy film it, you know it's it looks like one or it's associated with with that type people of are thing. kind of judging it on yeah the yeah or yeah exactly different. um so you know one of the challenges has definitely been to try to get it seen in that way and i think being on pbs was really huge uh we we took our we it was really important to us to do a theatrical campaign for that reason we thought if it's playing in a theater next to spider-man or whatever you know people will look at it and think oh well this isn't you know a community screening led by some organization that i don't agree with you know it's a movie let's go see this movie so and and i think that i think that's been effective um, but yeah, it's totally, it's, it's a totally a challenge. I mean, cha- I think changing hearts and minds on an issue like this, where you're not trying to, you know, you're not defending, you know, orcas or, or rhino poaching or so things that are obviously black and white, right and wrong. Yeah. Uh, it's really, it's really Have hard. Have you had any <laughs> conversations with any very like right, you know, conservative, very ardent, uh, you know, there's, there's. People that you can talk to and people that you can't talk to, you know, people who are, you know, who have family members who have lost, you know, who are maybe are the family members of the victim of a violent crime or, or the friends of a family member. Oftentimes, actually, it's, it's weird. It's, it's someone that's kind of one or two degrees removed from the victim who, uh, I don't think is in quite enough pain to try anything to heal there, it's a little bit easier for them to just cling to uh, vitriol and and uh, a sense of vengeance. But when you talk, you know, I've met plenty of actual parents or actual siblings of, of young people who've been who've been murdered by 15, 16 year olds. And when the grief is that immediate and that unbearable, I really think there is this sense of like, look, you know, the anger is just not, it's not working. It's not doing it for me. You know, I'm holding on to all this pain, all this anger. I want this person to die. I want to, I want them to die, you know, to burn in hell or whatever. That's not giving me what I want, you know, or, or what I need. Um, what else, what other options do I have? Oh, uh, forgiveness. Oh shit. Okay. Um, I guess I'll try it. Couldn't be worse than what, how I feel now, you know? And it's like, this kind of this, this like helpless, this desperation to just heal. And if you feel that enough, I think you can, you can, uh, it's possible to, to bring people to the other side to kind of think about maybe forgiving uh or, or start that dialogue or start or starting yeah. that dialogue i mean that's also something that you know just that's a personal interest of mine is is restorative justice is victim offender dialogue communication um i think that that's i would love to see that as the future of our criminal justice system because it's so much it's so much more human than the system we have and the system we have it it totally uh marginalizes and uh, dehumanizes not only the perpetrator but also the victims. You know, it just becomes this kind of charade in a courtroom where two sides are trying to tell the the, the more interesting story about what happened, and it's not attending to the feelings of either person. You know, or you know, it's it's but it's very but it's it's hard to paint with a really fine brush. You know, it's a lot easier to paint with a super yeah. thick brush. Well, it's, it's tough on the prosecution side. You know, they're they're pro- they're trying to convict an you know an alleged murderer, and at the same time, they're elected into this position and they have their own agenda that's going on right. as well. So, I mean, the problem the problem with the with the prosecution side, as far as I can tell, is. That yeah, I mean their their incentive is to to win, and the definition of winning is getting the most time for this for this for the defendant. You and know, perception to the public that they're yeah going yeah. all out to and, get and, the most time. Yeah, exactly. Even if it even if it it has makes no sense uh, when you actually consider who this person is or what the circumstances of their life were that led to the crime. You know, it's. Instead of all right, well, let's devise a punishment and a, or and or a treatment that really fits 
you as an individual with the intention of uh, healing you and rehabilitating you. Um, that's not that's not the the mission. You know, the mission is let's get you this this the toughest sentence possible because that's what our job is. And on the flip side, it's I think that's also a problem with the defense. You know, their version of winning is getting this person off the hook and home that next day. Uh, some you know, in some cases, obviously, I'm generalizing, but um, I've seen that not work either. You know, if it was really about what's the best plan for this person, maybe that does involve five years, seven years, ten years behind bars in in the right setting with the right type of treatment. Yeah. You know, if someone's if someone's going to be a, a risk to public safety, then by all means, you know, keep them removed from the public. You know, there that to me that does. I know there are people that are full on you know prison abolitionists out there, and I totally sympathize with that cause. But you know, and maybe maybe that is maybe specifically prison, the way that it is now. Sure, that's clearly not working, you know. But if people do have to be in some sort of detention or facility kept away from the public, if they are going to be a threat, then obviously, you know, we have to do that. But let's just be thoughtful, you know, and and take an individualistic approach. Um, and a holistic approach to those individuals when when we're dealing with them in the system, and obviously we're, we're you know we're doing the furthest thing from that now. Yeah, especially in terms of rehabilitation, it's really just punishment, punishment, punishment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, the rehabilitation is very rarely built into their sentence. It's just you know you get however much time you get, and you get shipped off to prison. Let's just hope the prison they send you to has a couple programs. You know, yeah. for you to and, and there are some prisons that have tons of amazing programs that you can literally spend all day educating yourself, treating yourself, um, bettering yourself. And there are other prisons that have one AA class, you know, that is maybe full and you can't even get into, and you're just on the yard. So there, you know, it's bringing bringing these types of programs, programs like Inside Outriders, to prisons is also it's the second piece of the puzzle you know you gotta you gotta create hope you gotta incentivize hope by giving someone a second a opportunity for a second chance and then you gotta give them the you gotta give them all the uh all the tools that they're gonna need to make good on that opportunity you gotta give them the programs you know you can't be like all right man here's uh here's your parole hearing it's in 15 years um good luck you know by the way uh, if you get into trouble during those 15 years or you, you know, you get caught with drugs or whatever, um, you're not going to get out. So, yeah. but too bad against them to begin with. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. And that's why, and that's why a lot of them have no hope. It's like, well, okay, fine. I have a parole hearing in 15 years, but it's not like I'm going to, you know, club med f during that time. <laughs> you know, it's like you're sending me to war, uh, and telling me I'm not allowed to, you know, shoot anybody, basically. You know, that's that's what kind of what the prison environment is in a lot of cases, especially on a on like a higher level yard, you know, with with more serious uh, criminals on the yard. As this film sort of informs what you want to do next, do you feel as if this has sort of influenced how you want to move forward with your career in a way? Yeah, for sure. I'm actually work. I'm working on that script now that I had that I had initially wanted to do, uh, which is a prison story. So I'm, I'm in the writing process now, uh, hoping to get that made, you know, I'd love to transition into doing narrative films. You know, that was kind of always the idea. Yeah. I love documentary. I'm, I want to continue with that as well. You know, I'm, I'm interested in, I feel like now more than ever, it's, it's fluid. Uh, there are a lot of people that are working in both forms, you know, that are somebody make does a doc series or directs some nonfiction thing and then goes back to work on this script that they've got, you know, and it's just, just obviously there are big differences between the two, but it's still storytelling, you know, and I think for me, I've definitely found a niche in the prison space, you know, so the fact that this screenplay is about the prison world uh, is super helpful for me. You know, because I've, I think that's, 
That's probably better than it could have ever been after having all this experience. Totally. That's the most amazing part is that I had, you know, I had initially started this journey to do research to write a screenplay, had forgotten all about that. Four years later, I've done more research now than I could have ever possibly imagined. And I can act and I can really write about prison, you know, and, and whenever I can't or I get stuck, I've got literally dozens of friends who were formerly incarcerated now. That I, and I had zero before. I didn't know a single person who'd ever been incarcerated. Now some of the people that I love the most in my life are people that had been in prison for 20, 25 years. You know, it's just, I, I've found a, a, a new community and a new family in a lot of ways through this work. I mean, the, the criminal justice movement, uh, especially, especially juvenile justice movement in LA and in California is really tight knit and it's really close and it's really, it's really a, a wonderful group of people. So that's the thing. It's like, yeah, I'm still, a, I'm still this, you know, privileged white guy who's never actually done any time in prison writing about prison, but I've learned a lot and I have the best possible community around me to point out, you know, what doesn't make sense, what does make sense, and you know how to how to make it authentic. Uh, how can people get involved with the organization that you're working with? Uh, that you so before? there's so there's a couple that I really love. Um, Inside Out Writers is fantastic, and the, and the lifeblood of the organization is volunteer writing teachers. You don't have to be a professional writer. You don't even have to be a writer. You just have to be a good person. And if you have an interest in doing this. There's a, uh, a process that you go through. If you go to, I believe, insideoutwriters.org um, or just Google Inside Out Writers, it's, it's very easy to, to find. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a process to become a writing teacher and then you get a class in a juvenile hall and it's one of the most empowering, enriching, incredible experiences, especially when it comes, especially when you're thinking about different ways to volunteer, you know, what's, what's a way to volunteer that makes a direct impact on people's lives, but is also, you know, going to be something that I'm going to want to do enough to keep going. Cause you have to, you have to feed yourself. I mean, I'm, I'm so firmly of the belief of like super, super selfish service, like do something that you, that you're getting more out of than the people that you're helping because that's gonna keep you going back. And it'll benefit them at the end of the day. Way, way yeah. more. Because you're, you yeah. have that fire. You yeah, you're engaged, you wanna be there, you know, and, and it's kind of brilliant because for, with something like Inside Out Writers, it's way more important that you show up every week than that you teach them, you know, how to write a sonnet. You know, it's way more important that you're just there. Somebody, you know, I think Father Greg Boyle from Homeboy Industry calls it, the minis or, or actually no Javier, uh, um, this this guy that used to run the uh, the uh, archdiocese of Los Angeles. Or I may be getting that totally wrong. Javier Starring, this is amazing, amazing guy. He has this expression, the ministry of presence. You know, and it's just the 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 value of sitting there, of just being next to somebody and just showing up. That's such a huge, you know, they say that about, what do they say about parenting or something? Like some percentage of it is just showing up. Yeah. Just they know that you made this commitment to them and you totally, keep coming back. Totally. Day day totally. It's, it's, it's amazing. And look, if you don't have the time or the energy or whatever to volunteer in that way, that's totally understandable. You know, there are other way. I think, it, I think the anti-recidivism coalition, which is another really great group that I recommend people Google. Uh, they have a, a letter writing program that they're trying to start where you start, it's basically a pen pal thing with, with guys that are in prison, you know, who are part of the organization who are trying to change their lives and just need a little bit of support. You know, I also have, I put some money on my phone. Um, I always have 20 bucks or something on credit so that former students can call me. And that's, I actually think that for somebody who's just, you know, really wants to just kind of dip their toes in the water. Like yeah. mentorship's the most important thing you can do. I mean, obviously, you know, look, if you want to donate some money to some of these causes, that's amazing. That's huge. Uh, short of that, being being a person in somebody's life, you know, even though that is it, that it can be a little intimidating, it can be, you know, it is a, a, 
a responsibility, um, it's by far the most effective thing that I've seen. I mean, every single kid I've ever met who's been through the system has and has changed their lives tells the same story about, I was doing this, I was messing up, I didn't care about anybody, I didn't care about anything, then I met this person. And it's like, that's the, and that's the, that's the turn. Yeah, someone who cares, someone who takes yeah. an interest in them yeah, yeah. when they've been just completely yeah. ignored. The transformation story does not happen without that moment. So try to, you know, try to be that for somebody. That's, that's the best thing you can do. Uh, and they call us monsters is currently on Netflix. It is. Yes. If you're, if you're not in the U S I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're not, I don't think we're out internationally. iTunes or Amazon. Yeah. Or? May, maybe I'm not totally sure, but definitely. Yeah. iTunes, Amazon, we're all over, you know, uh, pay-per-view and all and on demand and all that stuff, but also we're on Netflix. So that's definitely the most accessible way to see the film. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Totally. Really no, thanks, for, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Road to Cinema podcast. Director Ben Lear's documentary, They Call Us Monsters, is now available to watch on Netflix. We'll see you next time.